Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. In the end, in the end, for everybody, it's all about hard work. And I think that the one thing that I got, uh, you know, being raised blue collar is that there's so much more at stake for you if you decide to step out into this, that you end up drawing from the work ethic of your parents, the hardcore get, you know, go to work for not that much money and not that much, you know, passion for anything else, you know, except like raising your family. And the fact that, that there's a lot more at stake and instead of shirking from that, it's just to go forward uh, bold, bold as hell. And I feel like that, that was a lesson I learned from my own movie. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life. This is a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 111, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life podcast, and now our Independent Documentary Filmmaker 101 online course, designed to help you fund, make, and distribute your best documentary film. Later on in today's program, we'll be making a very special announcement about Independent Documentary Filmmaker 101 that you will most definitely not want to miss. Today I'd like to talk to you about your perspective and mindset when it comes to making your documentary film, and really maybe ultimately leading your own documentary life. When it comes to your perspective and mindset in relation to making your doc film, we've identified three primary areas that you'll want to get clear on before you proceed. They are number one, your goals and intentions, number two, your money mindset, and three, imposter syndrome. For this segment, I'd like to focus on that number two, which is your money mindset what money means to you, and how you feel about it. And that really goes for both your personal and professional perceptions of it. Now, when it comes to your doc filmmaking, I'm sure you've long realized the importance and necessity of money when it comes to the funding of your docs or drawing some kind of salary from your doc filmmaking career. I think that most of us can agree that money is oftentimes one of, if not the biggest hurdles in making our films. Look, Doc filmmaking is already inherently rife with challenges, right? Having little to no money in which to make our films, that just compounds all of those challenges. Or maybe conversely, money can help alleviate a number of those challenges. Which is why one of the first things you want to ask yourself is, is how I feel about money holding me back from making it? There was a time, and it really wasn't all that long ago, trust me, when I just kind of thought that money was what destroyed, or at least impeded most, if not all, artistic endeavors. That the mere mention of money, when it came to something like, in this case, film, it immediately negated artistic value, somehow making it less pure or authentic. If it sounds like I put a lot of judgment on money in filmmaking, you are absolutely right. There's no way around it. In fact, when I first started making my films, and this was actually before I even got into documentary, having no budget to work with at all, it used to be a source of pride for me. That because I didn't really have much money myself, I would be forced to come up with creative solutions for any of the, of course, many challenges that I would come up against. Now, 
Coming up with creative solutions in itself, of course that is not a bad thing in filmmaking. It's good, right? In fact, it often results in some pretty amazing moments on film that probably never could have occurred if money had been around to throw at the problem. But that being said, being able to pay your talent, crew, and even yourself something that should never be thought of as a bad thing or as a negative thing. And the idea, i.e. the judgment, that having some kind of budget in order to produce a film automatically makes it inauthentic or not worthy of making or watching, that thankfully has long become a thing of the past for me. That kind of idealistic, naive thinking, it never really got me anywhere. And it certainly didn't get me very far in my filmmaking career. Now, what I've described to you is part of a bigger whole of an overall money mindset. Your money mindset is the truth about how you think and feel about money, how you relate to it, and the energy you're putting out about it. Because here's the thing. Whether you're consciously aware of it or not, you have preconceived ideas about money, and that's going to influence your film funding opportunities and affect your ability to manage what you raise. Now, we have found that there are basically two camps that people reside in when it comes to their money mindset and doc filmmaking. The Camp 1 people can't wait to get started on putting together a plan to raise funding for their films and then getting to executing that plan. Hustling and making the funding happen, that just sounds like a natural part of the doc filmmaking journey. The Camp 2 people? Well, not so much. The thought of mobilizing their film funding objectives, that sounds like a painful, unnecessary, and very uncomfortable thing. Or worse, that they'd be selling a bit of their soul going out and asking people to give money to their film. You won't be surprised to hear that for most of my filmmaking life, I fell right smack into Camp 2. And I'll bet a lot of you have either been there yourselves or in fact currently reside there. Now, the good news is that there is hope for us. We don't have to be stuck in Camp 2. The even better news is that we can find a way that makes us not only comfortable asking people or organizations to financially support our film, but that we are actually doing these people or organizations a favor by allowing them into our film journey. But before we can begin to do this, it's really, really, really critical that we get right with money and how we feel about it in our personal and professional lives, and then how we feel about it in our doc lives. Like many Americans today, for the longest time, I struggled with debt, and I lived with the struggle for a long time, so much so that it just became something that I stopped even acknowledging or just kind of assumed that most of us had to deal with as a normal kind of aspect to our lives. I mean, look, if the U.S. government could happily do business being trillions of dollars in debt, why couldn't I operate with owing credit card companies, student loans, past due car repairs, etc., etc.? No biggie, right? Everyone was doing it. Our own government was doing it. Everyone was calling every six months to put off paying on their student loans due to economic hardship. Everyone was ignoring those daily phone calls from collection agencies. Everyone was struggling every month to make their rent. That was just a normal way of life, right? At least it most certainly was for me for about 15 years of my life out of university. Until one day, something clicked for me when a close friend of mine told me about this radio personality who goes by the name of Dave Ramsey, 
who was talking about ways in which everyone, anyone, could get themselves out of debt, could start saving up some money, and in fact, change the way in which they even thought about money, which was something I hadn't thought about, as I said, for at least 15 years, or at least told myself not to think about. Long story short here, I started looking directly at my debt, acknowledged that I had a bit of it, and that it was time to try something different. I wanted to cut into that debt, and regularly, and I wanted to shift the way in which I perceived money, which of course was the root of all evil, right? And something that didn't grow on trees, or something that I needed to be very, very careful with, because having it could be scary and dangerous. Now, does any of this resonate with you? Yeah, I kind of thought so. I was brought up thinking the same way. And bless my parents. I came from a blue-collar family, and they worked their butts off so that my siblings and I could have happy childhoods, which we did. But one of the things they unknowingly did in our upbringing was gave us some great anxieties and fear around money. They instilled fear in us that money was something that we could and would run out of. And that if we weren't very protective of it, or didn't save it, save it, save it, although there never seemed to be any mention of what we were saving for, by the way, then we would surely be doomed. Now, I'm not going to sit here and blame my parents for my past credit card debts. That's on me. That was my responsibility. And I had to make the choice to work myself out of it. But I can say for sure that my money mindset, specifically a mindset of fear and lack, was definitely developed in many ways during my childhood. Now let's fast forward to when I started to get right with money, and I started paying off my debts, started creating an actual savings, and eventually would buy a house. One of the things that just sort of naturally occurred from all of this was a healthier relationship with money. I no longer hated it so much. In fact, it started to feel liberating when I was paying money that I owed. It felt like freedom when I could buy a house or could buy some real film gear and travel to places around the world to start shooting with this film gear. I started to truly believe that money wasn't evil, that it was a natural part of the world around me, and that it flowed freely to and from me. I made money and I spent money. That was just the natural order of things. And that when I had been frustrated by money in my past or fearful of it, it was most likely because I was fighting against it being a natural part of the life. Which is another aspect to this whole money mindset thing, your inner dialogue. So what are you telling yourself about money? And let's talk specifically about money and your dog films. Do you tell yourself you are deserving of receiving significant funding, or are you perhaps harboring beliefs that you're not good enough or worthy enough to receive, control, and distribute substantial amounts of money? Do you ask yourself why anyone would give you money when they could be giving it to any number of other projects, charities, or organizations? Do you call yourself names and use derogatory words to describe yourself, such as a fraud, incapable, unqualified, useless with money, not confident or likable enough for people to donate to? I want you to make a note of the language you use in relation to what you're telling yourself about your abilities around money. And of course, be honest here. 
I mentioned earlier this idea that we were doing people a favor by asking them to make a financial contribution to our films. The reason I say this is that by asking someone to do this, you are in essence asking them to be a part of making this important film a real possibility. You are allowing them the opportunity to put something out into the world that wasn't previously there. And most likely, you're asking someone who already has an interest in the subject of your film. All the more reason they might like the chance to be a part of a film that is attached to a subject that they already feel strongly about. When you think of it this way, you quickly realize why people donate to films in the first place. People give money to projects for emotive reasons rather than factual or objective ones. People give money because of how it makes them feel. They feel happy to be playing a part in something they believe in. People give money because of how they see themselves because of their connection to your project. People give to people. Connecting in a human way allows people to get to know, like, and trust you and put their faith and their money into you and your doc film project. Doc Lifer, I am here to tell you that you need to stop letting your fear of money take away your ability to generate it. Knowing that the money for your film is out there waiting for you and knowing that you are going to find it that makes you invincible. You must see fundraising the same way that you see filmmaking. You have your concerns and reservations about your abilities to do it, but there is something deep down that knows that you can. A part of you that knows you have everything you need to learn, grow, and develop as a filmmaker and as a fundraiser. You wouldn't have started on this journey if that seed had not already been planted somewhere within you. Let the money seed grow within you too. You can be creative and rich. You can be a credible, groundbreaking, and authentic filmmaker and have a fully funded film. And then make money on that film afterwards. Now, your money mindset is just one of the three important areas that I believe are critical in order to get right with your perspective and mindset as a doc filmmaker. Inside our course, Independent Documentary Filmmaker 101, which we've mentioned a few times in the past month or so, we discuss all three of these important perspective and mindset shifts in relation to your goals and intentions, money mindset, and imposter syndrome. Of course, we've talked about imposter syndrome briefly with our guest, doc film director Alex Holmes, back in episode number 108. Through IDF 101, we offer you important insight and information about how to not only get clarity, but get your head in the right place before you even begin to shoot. So for more information or to see if enrollment in something like Independent Documentary Filmmaker 101 might be the right fit for you and your doc journey, you can go to the documentarylife.com courses, where you can watch our IDF 101 video and read more information on what IDF 101 can offer you. I want to thank you for listening to today's segment on perspective and mindset for the doc filmmaker. Now, a few minutes ago, I mentioned coming from a blue-collar family, and I know that's going to resonate with a lot of you doc lifers, with a lot of you listeners. Right around the corner is like the ultimate blue-collar doc filmmaker. And that conversation with him, that's coming up next here on The Documentary Life. 
You've probably noticed that we're playing around with some pretty cool fresh sounds on this season of TDL. And I'd like to thank Musicvine for supplying us with those cool fresh sounds. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about how Musicvine might be able to serve your doc project, you can check out the show notes for today's episode, or you can simply go to their website at musicvine.com. V. Scott Balseric is a filmmaker and musician. He produced and edited More Than a Game, a featured documentary about LeBron James, which was released by Lionsgate and nominated for an Independent Spirit Award. He also directed Replay, a Gatorade-branded doc series featuring Eli and Peyton Manning that received numerous advertising accolades, including eight gold lions at Cannes. Prior, Balseric was the senior visual effects editor for George Lucas's Star Wars films, Episodes 1 and 2, as well as Ang Lee's The Hulk and Wolfgang Peterson's The Perfect Storm. He attended the American Film Institute in Los Angeles while editing a short documentary, Street Songs, which received a Student Academy Award. And he spent more than 20 years shooting his most recent documentary film, Satan and Adam. It is his first feature film as a director. Wow, Scott, I am I'm absolutely elated to have you on the program, man. I, I, I'm glad that uh, we've been able to make this happen. Welcome to The Documentary Life. Thanks for having me on. I'm, uh, I love the show, so it's going to be fun. That's good to hear, man. That's great. So producer, editor, visual effects, commercial director, documentary filmmaker, what of these came first for you? And, and maybe share a little bit of how this would eventually inform your journey as to, to doc filmmaking. Uh, well, uh, I started out as an editor, but really I started out as a musician. Mm. And uh, if you look in the history of uh, editors, a lot of them are musicians because yeah. the whole idea of pacing and rhythm and all that. And uh, I've, <laughs> I've, so, something I've noticed over my career that there's a lot of musicians who, who end up becoming editors because they don't want to be in bands touring the world or, you know, they, you know, they just don't <laughs> want to be uh, musicians and they have something, I think, bigger to say. So yeah, I think there's something um, about the mathematics of editing and, and, and creating music as well. <laughs> hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Really, really think that. So, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, I was working at, at, I got an internship at a TV station and where, you know, they had us do a bunch of stuff and I noticed that I was better at editing than anything else. Yeah. And then, uh, so I decided to go into that. I didn't want to be that person who said, uh, I want to, I want to be a director right away. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, I wanted yeah. to come, I didn't go to film school, uh, undergrad. So I, I felt like I needed to learn one of the crafts that wasn't directing, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. And, and so, you know, to, in order to sort of get a film school thing back, yeah. uh, you know, in my, and that was like working at that TV station. But then a friend of mine, who's also a musician had this film street songs, uh, the film street songs was actually about a street musician yeah. in Pittsburgh, um, who, who sang for his money and he lived in poverty and he was blind and that's how he, so it was just sort of this verite study of this man. Wow. It was half half hour film. And when I was still in Pittsburgh, and this is around the 92, 93, 92 area, a friend of mine was saying, you know, this is before it won the uh, uh, Student Academy Award, but it was already getting kind of accolades before that. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah, it was yeah. getting in festivals and stuff, and it was just like a student film. And he was saying, you should come see this act at this bar. And they're, they're sort of like they, they started playing on the street and they're sort of like this subject. So I was like, OK, I didn't really know anything about them. Wow. But he took me there and I was just blown away by these two people. I thought it was at first like I thought there was more people on stage because they had 
such a big sound. The sound, you know, as of I was course. Paying, yes, huge. And I was, I was paying my ticket. You couldn't see them, but it yeah. sounded like it was, maybe it was the opening act or whatever because it felt like there was a huge sound. And all of a sudden, I turned the corner. It's only two people. Oof. And, you know, ex-street musicians who made it off the street and now were, you know, starting to potentially rise up. And I thought that that would be an interesting thing to, to document. So on the heels of this project with Craig, of the Street Songs project, I, I got interested and I said, hey, Craig, do you want to do this together? Craig eventually had to drop out of the project because when, you know, Sterling disappeared and we got our first grant, we got our first grant, uh, suddenly we like we didn't have a movie and he got a teaching position in Singapore. And wow. so he was like, sorry, man, I don't, I don't you know, this film's probably not going to go anywhere. And um, <laughs> it's, we, can, we couldn't get a grant at, at a certain point. We got one, like one or two grants to start. and They were measly, yeah. but they were enough to start. Yeah. But after that and after he disappeared, we couldn't get anything. So yeah. I just made a decision to just keep going on my own. Harlem in the 80s was depressed economically, but collective culture. This was before gentrification. Because my mom was a Christian, it was a sin for me to play the blues. I'm serving the devil. I was trying to figure out who this guy was. Sterling was just a hell of a guitar player. Somebody took me aside and said, you know who you're playing with? You're playing with Sterling McGee. You know, he was on Ray Charles's Tangerine label. He played with Etta James, Marvin Gaye. He backed up James Brown at the Apollo, and they would point down the block at the Apollo Theater. We both found it intensely exciting to be making music on the street. It takes a lot of courage or a lot of ignorance to the environment you hear. This white man, what is he doing? Is he helping it or is he stealing the music? It drew us. It was like a magnet. I'm really just blown away by what I'm hearing and seeing. We suddenly were recognized. It's called co-acceleration. You know, that's when know the music swings. That's a great big old word that ain't worth a damn. 3,000 people in Central Park, and it's like, we're really making it. I don't do it for money. I don't do it for fame. This is my mission. The last gig we played, he missed some lyrics. He doesn't lose lyrics. She gave me a look like oh, something was wrong. Sterling had really kind of fallen off the grid. And what are you going to do when somebody just disappears? We should talk a little bit about the various formats in which this film was shot on. And I'll say, you know, right up front, Scott, you know, as I'm watching the film, I'm writing some questions for you, right? I'm sort of getting preparing for this conversation. And I'm about two thirds through the film. And a lot of my conversation or a lot of my thoughts revolved around uh, the various formats and the and what I was thinking was archival footage, if you will, at the time. And then I looked you up and th- it was then that I realized that this was a 20 plus year journey and then it taunts on me, oh man, this isn't archival footage in the sense that the director went and, you know, had to do his re- his or her research and, and, and seek out this archival footage. Scott shot this and has been working on this for 20 plus years. And so it's kind of an interesting view. It made for a really interesting viewing experience for me because I really saw this as archival footage. And then, of course, I would geek out on it as a as a fellow filmmaker later on, especially when I realized that, no, they actually, you know, they shot all this. So all that being said, Scott, talk about early on the formats that you were using and then how that developed over the years. So one of my big things was uh, I wanted everyone to feel what it would feel like to walk into Harlem, uh, you know, as Adam in 1986. And just just also just to show people as much as I could what Harlem was was maybe like at that time. Mm. So around 90, it was like 94, 95 when I started to shoot 
when I shot there. Harlem was still the Harlem that we know. It wasn't probably as bad as 1986. I don't know if there was any period in New York history that was that bad, at mm-hmm. least racially. Racially, it was a really rough period. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. N- n- 90, 95, it was still the old, you know, Harlem, um, 94, 95. So uh, I just shot all, all through Harlem, you know, and that, that's, that's what you see. And um, that was uh, 16 and, and Super 16. It was, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, millimeter film. Unreal. And, um, over the years, I would people would come to me and say, "Oh, I have um, like a super VHS of like Satan just by himself before Adam came." <laughs> I'll take uh, it. Oh, I have. I'll take it. Yeah, I'll have this, and I, I have this, and I have that. And I think that through the power of modern technology, which, which would be like circa 2018, when I was doing the color correct, that we were able to <laughs> sort of try our best to meld the two together. And for those uh, major geeks out there. You know, working at ILM, it, the colorist, of course, knows more than I do. But uh, working yeah. at ILM, I was aware of, you know, we, we had stocks sort of scanned and, and that we would pop. So if I had a certain 16 millimeter emulsion, you know, like I, we had that sort of scanned and we would use it as the grain structure over some of the video. Wow. And, and it, was, it was, I mean, I could tell, but I know that the, the majority of the public doesn't. And I get it. Every festival, almost every festival, I get asked the same question. Like, how did you get all that archival footage? <laughs> See what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and, yeah, yeah. But it, it's, a, it's just a sort of a sneaky mixture of my footage, which is legit because it was of the time. Yeah. It wasn't exactly 86, but it was still the, ha- the old Harlem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then mixed, in with, mixed in with some, pe- some footage that, that I, I just luckily found people. There was news people that had done stories hmm. e- even in the 80s. And then uh, Adam's cousin had shot st- stuff in like 1988, oh. and so it was it was a, a grand combination of all that time and, and some really uh, it took me a, took us a long time to cut all that to, you know make it feel like you were there at that time it was it was tough but we did it. Wow, you certainly did. As a fellow editor, it's uh, you've you've done a master masterful job, you know, not only putting this together in a storytelling sense, uh, but certainly using that color process and the formats that you were using, that really does kind of build the story and gives you a, an idea of the breadth of the of the timeline that we're dealing with. And uh, yeah, kudos and hats off to you for, Thanks, for that, yeah. man. I really appreciated that. I mean, there, there's, there's footage that you find cut into, it's like it'll just be one or two shots, mm. but it's, it's cut into the 16 millimeter and then made to look like 16 and they're just inserts so it's not sort of dishonest it's, yeah. it's sort of like something that we kind of needed to to do and we tried it we were like wonder if we just like cut to this like coffee table with a bunch of cds or on there yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. i mean so make it feel like it was back in the studio in the day yeah and um i i just got i shot like a raw image it yeah and and it worked and but no one no one can tell and i don't think it's lying so in that stuff you know i i i, I did do a little bit of manipulation, but you know, I just didn't have the money to c- continue to shoot film. And so I had to yeah. abandon my dream of making this poetic, uh, yeah. 35 millimeter, yeah. you know, movie. Yeah. So, well, you um, know what? I I'd love to examine that a little bit more because I think that our listeners will get a lot from that. And I know that even myself, I do personally, you know, my wife, Steph and I, we've been working on a documentary called Elvis of Cambodia, which is about the, the most yeah. famous singer ever to come up to have come out of Southeast Asia, that part of the world. 
and uh, and he was killed by the Khmer Rouge during the the mid seventies during the the Cambodian Holocaust, and our and 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 unfortunately unfortunately slash fortunately I think you'll go with me on this, um, we were up against the fact that you know due to that time period there's just literally other than one one shot one archival footage shot there is no footage of this singer and so we had to yeah. you know going into this we knew okay we need to be really 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 creative in in our storytelling devices and so we made a choice early on that we wanted to mimic some styles of footage one in the way we shot it and then two later on of course um, in post-production and for me I don't feel bad about that at all. I don't feel like it's lying. I, I, I don't feel like it's cheating. If you would have asked me 10 years ago, I probably would have thought differently about it. But now I feel like it's an acceptable part of the editorial process. And more than that, it's an acceptable part. And, and even more than acceptable, it's an exciting part of the storytelling process. I'm curious where you fall on that. Is there is there a point where, where we doc filmmakers go too far um, in, in our storytelling devices, in this case, maybe with archival footage that maybe wasn't truly archival to begin with? That's an interesting question. That's something I've thought about so much. Yeah. Um, you know, I've always wanted to be, I was always into the sort of a cinema, the cinema verite, like Frederick Wiseman, you know, I was, I was into all that stuff. Me too. Huge. Yeah. And so, so for me, I felt like, like like a certain guilt almost um, in, in, in doing that. But as I was an editor, I was editor for other people's movies and yeah. stuff like that. And I felt like I didn't have the attachment to, to their – well, I did have an attachment to their film. Of course, I was cutting it. There's yeah. nothing more complicated than cutting someone else's documentary, you know, obviously. <laughs> but, um, you know, I – I, I think I, I felt like a little bit more free to alter some stuff in order to serve story, which eventually became to me more important than uh, preserving a, a, a philosophical concept mm. in, in filmmaking. Because mm. I think that story, the storytelling aspect for me has become much more important. And, but I think the honesty in the storytelling is the important thing. I don't think it's important that, that, that this footage didn't come from this time and because you didn't have it that, you know, uh, you shouldn't use it or you shouldn't try to recreate something creatively. I mean, and then all these films like Man on Wire came out and yeah. all the recreations and stuff like that. You know, I got, I got so into that because in, in a sense, like, it's so cinematic. Mm. And I wanted Satan and Adam to feel cinematic. I mean, I love documentaries, but I also... There parts of them I don't like are just that they could be just too talking head and a little boring. And yeah. I wasn't interested in that. I didn't, right. you know, I, 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 what became important to me was uh, good storytelling and cinema. I wanted the film, I wanted the film to feel like uh, if you were going to see a narrative uh, indie film or a ho you know, Hollywood movie, totally. you know, that when you were in the theater that you were having that type of experience. So everything was driven by that for me. It, yeah. it, it changed, it changed from being like the truthful, honest, almost uh, journalist type filmmaking into, you know, more of sto story oriented uh, stuff where story was first and the issues were, were sort of came through the story, yeah, not the yeah. other way around where, yeah. where I, uh, I'm not in Satan Adam, I'm not doing a film that's about race. That's not the mm. way in. It's, it's just this good story. It's this good story that you get and you connect to these characters because you're, you know, I'm, I'm trying to tell you a good story. And then later, 
the race has more significance because you've attached yourself to these characters. Whereas the other way around, you just have a bunch of talking heads talking about racial. You know, I didn't want. I'm not interested in historical docs. I love them, mm. but I don't. I'm not interested in that. I in making at one, all. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd rather tell a story, and then if there's uh, there's some social issues that come out of the movie, great. Um, that that is more <clears throat> secondary to me. And I got to say, personally, for me, that I find that those uh, are sometimes more powerful. And um, I came here, let's see, I came here, my sister and her husband came by and got me at the hospital and I came on down here. It was a um, terrible ordeal, you can say it like that. Scott, something I really want to focus our discussion on now is the idea of a passion project and how we stay connected to our films and and what enables us to keep going, what supports us during that time, financially, mentally, psychically, on a lengthy project. You know, the project that we're working on right now, we're five years in, and that feels like a long time. Uh, But 20 plus years working on a doc film, I can safely say that we've not had anyone on the program, at least that has talked about a current film um, of that length. And so uh, first and foremost, (laughs) 20 plus years, huge congratulations, man. Can you share with us some insight and some of the, what are some like tips that helped you stay in the game with this doc for that kind of a, kind of a time period? Well, um, the, I'll, I'll say this on at the outset of it is, um, I think the relationship that I built with Sterling became probably the, the center of it, mm. of my desire to, to keep going. Mm. And I tell you, and then on Adam's side, it was him um, sort of pre- sort of pressuring me. You know what I mean? And <laughs> and and, the, and those two those two worked on me, and we they didn't know they were, but they were working on me because <clears throat> Sterling opened up his life to me, you know, uh, in a big way. Um, uh. As you as a, and so um, I I know that. Uh, I don't know about you, but I know that if, if I had gone through the situations he had gone through, that I probably wouldn't want a camera in my face. Yeah, and, I, believe and me, the watching that, the film, I really wondered about that a lot. Yeah, and so the fact that he let me in to do that, and, and also, you know, we were both, you know, musicians, and I I, I was enamored of him. You know, yeah. I thought he was an amazing yeah. musician. It would play circles around me, but... Yeah. I, 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 I'm just into me, other musicians. All, all musicians are. They have a, and they have a sort of, you know, their secret language, you know, yeah. uh, talking about the way that you fret or the way that you play. And this is like sort of talk and shop, you know. And we just developed this relationship. And I felt like, man, I can't leave this guy mm. out just, you know, that the movie ends and he's just like sitting on his ass in Florida and just oh. not, not playing and not doing anything. And, and, um, well, so, Scott, so we a, should pause for a second, explain that, because, of course, that does happen in the film. You know, there's a significant gap because the, the character of Sterling, a.k.a. Satan, ends up uh, he ends up leaving for a couple of years, period, like disappears from New York down somewhere in Florida. So what are you doing during that time period? What's keeping you involved and how are you connected with him, if in any way? Talk a little bit about that. Well, um, yeah. So I thought uh, this was probably the end of the film, but um, I was I was working at Lucas at the time mm. on um, the Star Wars projects and stuff like that, and it was like my day. It was my day job. That was your Luckily, day job, yeah. Uh, 
George, George was like, uh, he let his uh, employees use the equipment at night and stuff like that. So I did, they, they were very helpful. Industrial Light and Magic is where I worked, but yeah. they were, you know, very helpful, you know. But anyways, Adam, you know, th that was a time when, you know, not a lot of people had like a lot of fancy computers. Adam certainly didn't, but I did because I was at, you know, Lucas. And uh, I noticed on Google that the white pages were, the, were, were slowly coming online. So you could actually, <laughs> instead of using the old white pages, Start you could, searching, yeah. So what I did was um, I knew he was from Florida, and I just typed in the last name McGee <laughs> and, and pulled up a search of all the people named McGee in the state of Mississippi yeah. and, and just randomly called. And people hung up on me and whatever. But eventually, yeah. You just started crazy. making calls. I just started making calls. I was the actual one who found Mr. Satan. Uh, Adam didn't. And not, not that it's his fault. Oh. He, he just didn't. He just didn't know how to do it, and uh, I had the power of technology at my fingertips. Yeah, because I was I was working at Lucas, and you know I so I I found his name, <laughs> a, na a name, and I, I called people said don't call here again, and no people way. hung up on me. Who are you? And stuff like that. How'd you get this number? Like kind of thing. And I uh, I finally found a, a guy who was his cousin. It was like a second cousin or cousin. And, oh, yeah. And and uh, I remember him saying uh, someone else had answered the phone. And he said, Oh, let me go get his cousin. And he put the phone down. He the phone was down. I'm not kidding. For a, probably seven to ten minutes. I'm not kidding. And I was like, "What happened? Like, I, I got so close, but I think I'm gonna not get this information. No way. And and then the guy comes up and goes, "Oh, he's in Florida." And he gives me the number, and it was like over. So it was like this really long wow. you know, build up to. And then I was like, and I called him, and uh, his sister picked up, and he, he gets on the phone with me, and he's like, "Mr. Scott." No. And I was like, "What?" Way. You know. And I, I just ask him, you know. Can I come down there? And I see can you? see and I, you. <laughs> yeah, and I, 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 I said I'm going to bring a, a very small uh, crew. Yeah. And he was like, Yeah, come on down. You no know, he was way. like, he was very much into it. Come on down, Mr. Scott. And I was like, This is so bizarre. And then I called Adam, and he was like, What? You found? Oh my God! And you know, and then well, of course Adam <laughs> had his own problems. You know, he had a heart attack. I mean, this, yeah. this film. I mean, then when I went down there, I'm like, well, maybe he's playing again. I, you know, I had sort of hope, and it was just nothing. <laughs> nothing. Um, well, and that that's important too because there's another moment. You know, I'm watching the film and I'm thinking, well, this was is another end for it, but there's still time left in the film. So you must have been thinking there again, like, well, I can film this and then I can wrap this is this is going to wrap it up. So what kept you going? You know, right. and not the ending it there. <laughs> I sort of went down there to, for him to tell me on camera yeah. that that, that was the end of the end of the line. That's and right. then I thought, well, I, I need the character to tell me I'm done playing yeah. and my life is something different. But he he wouldn't do it. Oh, and really? He, didn't, he did. He didn't do it. And he was like, I got to practice, man. I got to, you know, he he had, of course, he had a stroke, and you know, he couldn't he couldn't play at all. Yeah. Um, not men mentally, he literally could not. His his fingers didn't work anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah we see that. And yeah. so yeah, and so um, God, that was so devastating to me because I'm a musician. Oh, I can like, only imagine. You know, yeah. I mean, if you're like you, you're you know an editor. You make you make your money in different ways, and oh. that's the only thing he had. You know, so it's like that gets taken away from you. That's like the core center of your almost identity or being. And I I just was like God. And then I, I felt like at that moment that if he's gonna tell me <laughs> that. Or if he's going to give me a sense that there's hope, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm I'm going to try to keep going. But the the, the next layer, yeah. So I, I came back, I had all this footage, and I was like, okay, <laughs> all right, 
So um, I'm going to plan another shoot. I'm going to cut some stuff together. I, I tried to get grants, stuff like that. I yeah. couldn't get them. Really? Yeah, I couldn't get anything. Nothing. I couldn't get anybody to give me anything. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Ever, ever. It never worked, ever. I, could, I got turned down for every grant because I was insistent that I was not making a political style movie. Oh. A, a mo- movies about something, about something like that. Of course. You know, like if, I, if I'd have totally ch- changed the story and said, you know. About um, race. They about, wanted well, it to be about well, race. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is about, this film's about white appropriation of black music or something like that. I would yeah. have probably maybe gotten, but I, I, I was not interested in that story at all. That is and so, amazing. So, so it, you know, I was just left like, I'm, I, I just accepted that I'm just going to do this myself yeah. and prove everybody wrong. <laughs> I mean, there's a little what? bit of chutzpah in there. I was like, I'm just going to yeah, keep doing this. But uh, that was like a that was a huge task because the next time I went down there, he wasn't with his sister. He was in a nursing home. Yeah. And, and, he, and he, he couldn't do shit. And he was all drugged up. Worse. And I was like, oh, it was, it was even worse. And I was like, oh, my God. At that point, if you wanted to ask me, like, where, where my turning point was, where I was, where I was like, massively depressed uh, i mean we all deal with this is as filmmakers put all this money into it i could have put a down payment on the house i could have had i could have got married i could have had kids uh, i could there's a lot of stuff i could have you know what i mean if i wasn't like attached to this film you know day job and this film and stuff like that so all of a sudden it, it, it was like okay this film is over and now now i'm in a situation where where maybe he, Maybe the film could have been like, hey, I'm not playing again, but I, I still hold uh, the values of um, music and life. And uh, you know, I don't know. And maybe he would tell me a bunch of stories about playing with Marvin Gaye or James Brown. And I would just like end uh, a, a life well, a life well lived. But I couldn't do it. With this yeah, movie. right. This was like I did think that that was kind of of ultimately what would have to happen. I really did. I was like, it's going to be a life well lived. <laughs> it's just film. Yeah. 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 Hi Chris, I've started your independent documentary filmmaker 101 course. My relationship with money was terrible and for the first time it feels like it's changing. Thanks for all your hard work. Well, that clip was taken from a doc lifer who's just starting out on his own documentary filmmaking journey, who is an enrollee in our online documentary filmmaking course, Independent Documentary Filmmaker 101. Ever since we released IDF 101 a little over a month ago, we've been receiving great messages and emails from other excited and inspired enrollees like Jay. We can't tell you how happy we are that IDF 101 is having such an amazing impact on doc lifers and helping to move their films forward to financial and distribution success. That is why we've decided to make it more readily available to other doc filmmakers who really could use our help. We have listened to some of you who have expressed genuine interest in enrolling in IDF 101, but found that $429 was maybe just too much of an upfront cost. So we've now decided to also offer it in 12 monthly payments of just $42 per month. So for less than the cost of an Adobe Creative Cloud subscription, you'll be able to enroll in IDF 101 and have access to video tutorials that will guide you from funding your film, building an audience for your film, getting your film out to a willing crowd, and ultimately making you a truly profitable documentary filmmaker. And you'll also get 30 days to try it out risk-free. So if you feel that it's not the right fit for you, you can reach out for a no-questions-asked full refund. The way I see it, you've nothing to lose and possibly everything to gain. 
We want to see you make your documentary dreams a reality. And we truly believe that enrolling an independent documentary filmmaker 101 is the first best step you can take to making that dream really happen. Check it out today by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. I look forward to seeing you inside. I got to say, man, I feel like maybe some part of the film taking so long is that I, I couldn't even bear to cut it oh wow because it's an ending that i i I didn't have an answer for and Uh. it would have required me to sort of almost like as a white person lie about this black man's life like in some ways you know what i mean because i couldn't bear to see him in that situation when i had so much admiration for him yeah well it's like adam yeah 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 much like the character so i yeah exactly so i rolled the dice i rolled the dice i was like okay you know what i'm gonna do I'm going to, I'm going to wait. And, and some people were like, man, you just wait for him to die. Yeah. And, you know, some yeah, people would course. say that to me and I, and I thought I was so offended by that, but mm. cause that was not, not the case at all. But I, I just want to say this. I just want he, he constantly, he, and it's hard to believe, but he constantly gave me a little glimmer. He would always give me a little glimmer. Uh, so as we wrap up, what I'd love to hear Scott is Talk to me about perseverance as a doc filmmaker, the importance of it, and how we stay in the game. I I feel uh, being a sort of a multi hyphenate person is the, is the, it, these days is the way to stay in the game. You know, I'm I shoot my stuff, I edit my stuff. You know, you have to. You know, I, working for other people, a lot of people would say like, "Wow, you're not you're not working on your film, you're working on other people's films." But working on other people's films helped me. You know, it just just stay in the form if you love it. You, you know, it's not a, a big problem for you. Um, on the economic side, you know, there's been d- definitely like tough times, but um, I think I, I became a better editor and uh, a, a better filmmaker. I've even gotten a little bit into producing, helping people, yeah. you know, produce their films. And so I think working with other people, a lot of people look at it as, 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 a, as that you're, it's taking away from what you are, are doing. Mm. But I, and I think that's sort of a maybe narcissistic view. I feel like working with other people has helped me a lot because mm. you, you run into their narrative problems and you fig, you help figure them out and that, that helps your film. And I think that that, that was a, a, a big thing. You know, for me, um, I didn't come from money, you know I mean? My, you know, my dad's a, you know, factory worker. Yeah, me too. So it was particularly tough for me yeah. to like, and so I just had to do that, but it ended up that it was like some of the best thing that it was, it was almost better than film school, you know, in some ways it probably was better than film school, which I ended up going to later uh, in life. But uh, <laughs> I now, you know, I would say to most, just go out there and just, just do stuff, you know, and keep, keep active on it and just keep, just, just keep doing it. Life is different as a as a as a filmmaker as a creative. I mean, it's not your normal. But I I would not, I wouldn't trade it for anything. But it's been a, a ton of of uh, really hard work. And I didn't want to play the violin on your show at all. But <laughs> I, I really do respect like you know um, uh, if there's any viewers out there if, like just, just the 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 absolute perseverance you know to do this. I always said to people I'm I'm not the one that should be making documentaries. It should be like rich people who have an axe to grind. You know what I mean? Like, why did I, why did I get into this? I mean, I used to question myself because it's like, there's no money in it. There's, there's only, the only thing there is, is like, sort of like a passion for it, yeah. you know? And I used to feel cursed by it. Yes. That's, that's, that, that's kind of what I wanted to say. Yeah. It's like, 
I have no business in there. I mean, I've been in major poverty situations. I, I, um, I can't, I have come from a blue collar family. My father worked at, at Kodak in Rochester, New York, where I'm originally from, you know, for Whoa. 30 plus years. Wow. And so, yeah. you know, so Rochester Buffalo is, is very blue collar, uh, and has been for I, yeah. years. So I have just huge respect for, for, for that world and, uh, and for people that, uh, brothers and sisters that come from that world. And so, yeah. uh, yeah, you're, you're definitely speaking, uh, a world that I understand pretty well and, uh, and have mutual respect for what, you know, Scott, I I'd love to hear this. How do you think coming from a blue collar, I mean, come on, man, Pittsburgh, Rochester, Buffalo, how do you think coming from that part of, of the world and coming from a blue collar uh, family, how did that help you as a doc filmmaker? Right. If there's one thing to glean from the blue collar, and it's, it's, it was a work ethic of my father. Yeah. Work, the, just the pure, I mean, that ain't a pretty life. My dad worked in a factory. You know, yeah. you know I always say my, he came home dirty. And I remember going to AFI, everyone, was, everyone around me was, was from somebody, was wealthy <laughs> or whatever. And I remember deeply questioning myself, like, what the fuck am I doing? Am I supposed I, to what? be here? Am I an imposter? I know. I felt like an imposter. Like, I shouldn't be here. Yeah. You know what I mean? But. Yeah. In the end, in the end, for everybody, it's all about hard work. And I think that the one thing that I got, uh, you know, being raised blue collar is that there's so much more at stake for you if you decide to step out into this. Yeah. That you end up drawing from the work ethic of your parents, the hardcore, get, you know, go to work for not that much money and not that much, you know, passion for anything else, you know, except like raising your family. And the fact that, that there's a lot more at stake. And instead of shirking from that, it's just go forward uh, bold, bold as hell. And I feel like that, that was a lesson I learned from my own movie because I don't think I realized that I have this sort of obstinate work ethic in mm -hmm. me uh, until I started realizing that, you know, I wasn't stopping on this movie. And so what is that thing that's driving you? And it, it must be sort of almost developmental, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, I don't, I don't know. Like where it's just pounded into you. You know what I mean? Like. You, you gotta you gotta keep working keep working keep working keep working and i think they're taking a risk it's so much more of a risk that you end up working harder because you think you could lose it at any second oh, you know what i'm saying oh hell yes i yeah, love it right. i love i'm so yeah. so glad you brought it's that the, up it's the best how can we see satan and adam it's playing in theaters right now yeah um in, in, in select cities and it's just doing it's you know these uh small indie like week runs yeah. you know Great reviews, uh, New York Times and uh, LA Times, and that was very helpful to get those reviews. Yeah. It will be coming to a platform near you uh, at some point. <laughs> so that's all I can say about that. Yeah, everyone can see it. Everyone will be able to see it. I mean, it's going to yeah. be very accessible, but I just don't know when and it'll be available. And yeah. we will keep, you know, obviously we'll have links to to your work and, and, and things that, you know, various things that we've talked about. Uh, on today's show, as we always do in the show notes for 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 the episode, um, but we'll also, as part of those show notes, we'll keep up to date on when and how uh, how one can see Satan and Adam. It's an amazing film. I am so glad that I was introduced to it, and uh, even 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 more glad that to have this candid conversation with a filmmaker like yourself. It's been just it's just been amazing. We've been speaking with V. Scott Balseric. The film is Satan and Adam. Scott, thank you so much for being in the documentary life, man. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Thank you. And don't forget, if you're interested in possible enrollment in our independent documentary Filmmaker 101 course, and you'd like to see if it might be a fit for you, head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. 
We'll see you in two weeks' time, Doc Lifer. Thank you.